Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Life Lessons from Sport and Beyond. I'm Simon Mundy. This week, I'm joined by John Barnes, the former Liverpool, Watford and England footballer. This episode is about understanding we are all the same and in many ways. John has a new book out and it's called The Uncomfortable Truth About Racism. And it goes further. It's really about mental hierarchies and our propensity for putting people on a pedestal. Here is a snapshot of what's coming up. Fortunately for John Barnes, football is popular. But someone who's much more committed, much more talented at tiddlywinks won't get it because no one likes tiddlywinks. Why am I worth more than him? Because I lose something that's popular. I really enjoyed talking to John. He's passionate, persuasive and unafraid to speak his mind. Before we get to it, I want to give a shout out to my sponsors whose ongoing support enables me to put out weekly episodes. CBD has been part of my daily routine for a few years now. And in my view, Pure Sports CBD are the most interesting brand on the market. Whether you're anxious, stressed, struggling to focus or sleep, there's something for everyone in their brilliant range of oils, capsules, balms and nootropics. I use the unwind oil, but if you want a bit more get up and go, their clarity oil, for example, could be just a ticket. And their nootropics are great, whether it be their new mind and body mushroom blend, female balance for hormone health and my fave, their deep sleep capsules. Pure Sports CBD products are triple lab tested and trusted by loads of the world's top athletes for a reason. And check this out. They're offering £10 off your first order using the code LIFE10 at checkout. That's LIFE and the number 10, all one word, at puresportscbd.com. Right, let's get to this week's conversation with John Barnes. John Barnes, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, lovely to see you. Listen, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Congratulations. It was clearly a labour of love. I know you got your whole family involved. You were sending it off to your... Only only for the spellings and the punctuations, (laughs) not for the content. 
<laughs> but there's lots of that to do, I can tell you. And I want to get onto the content and the essence of it and all that kind of stuff. But I want to start, if I may, John, with you. And I'm quite interested in a couple of bits, including something that came up about your mum waking you up at six to meditate. But we'll come to that. But what was life like for you before you moved to England, age 12? Am I right in saying you spent a lot of time on a military base? No, that's where we lived. <clears throat> right. Because, of course... <clears throat> In colonial times, you had the, the army base where the British officers lived and the, and the all Jamaican soldiers. But the British officers lived in these lovely houses of one acre. There's about 12 of them, of course, when it became independent. And the Jamaican officers, of which my father was one, we then moved into the, well, he moved into the, into the army base. So it's, 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 um, they've got shops, they've got swimming pools. So it's, a, it's like, you know, five, six square miles. So it's a community. I had to go to school off off the base, but it wasn't an, it wasn't an army base in terms of what you're thinking of. They have houses and they've got you know some shops and swimming pools and football right. pitches and cricket pitches. It was just on the army base, and that's where I lived all my life in Jamaica. I never lived anywhere else until I came to England. What impact did it have then? Do you think living living somewhere like that, and particularly, I know your father was obviously a military man, so I imagine discipline was an important thing. Absolutely. And of course, the impact it had on me, because of course, you know, if you know anything about Jamaican life, it's not particularly safe to be walking around when you're six, seven, eight, nine years old at 11, 12 o'clock at night, uh, as nowhere in the world is. But of course, living on the base, we were completely safe. Now, I didn't know anything else. So I just assumed that this is what life is about. So I've, it was a very outdoor existence from I was eight, nine, 10 years old, just being allowed to roam free out of the house one mile away from my house without my parents having to worry about me because no one could come onto the army base. Obviously, all my friends, my family, my, my cousins and life outside of the army base is what life was like. So the schools, if you want to go to the cinema, obviously you had to then leave the army base. So you could walk out and do whatever you want, but no one could come into the army base. So I was outside um, from, I came home from school until 10, 11 o'clock at night from I was seven, eight, nine years old without my parents worrying about me. So I thought what a great life this was. Obviously that wasn't real life in Jamaica or when I came to England at 12, 13 years old, I wasn't allowed to do that. So that took some getting used to. Did that leave a sense of safety, of security in you as a person? Absolutely, without even thinking about it, because don't forget, this is what I've, all I've known. And then I remember coming to England, and then, you know, when I'm 14, 15, my mother's saying, you've got to get home by nine o'clock, and where are you going, and what are you doing? And I thought, well, I never lived like this before when I was much younger. Of course, that's when it became apparent that now I'm in the big bad world, your mother's going to worry about you when she doesn't know where you are. Um, but I suppose it did give me a sense of adventure and yeah. exploration, which I actually did when I came to London without feeling insecure at all. And you do give an impression of being very secure in yourself. Is that an accurate description? Yes, and of course, once again, it'll be because of the way I've been conditioned to think in terms of the way I was brought up. By understanding um, through my family and seeing their interactions with people um, that we are as worthy as anybody else. Because, of course, um, in Jamaica, with my, 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 first of all, my father being second in command of the whole army and being in the higher echelons of, of that industry and my mother's family being quite prominent in Jamaica in, in having, you know, and when you're talking about meeting prime ministers and, 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 and politicians, uh, it's not as you would think here, possibly where it's a very official meeting. It'll be like, just pop by for a cup of tea and we chew, my mum would be chewing the fat with the prime minister about whatever it is. Um, so it's not a thing whereby you're consciously thinking this is an elite environment. I mean, because the prime minister is here, um, you know, it would just be someone who is my mother's friend who, you know, they come to have a talk about politics. Yeah. Um, but of course, it then gave you a, a, a sense of worthiness when it came to 
thinking about hierarchy, intelligence, worthiness, and other and other positive attributes. What was your dad like? My dad was a fantastic man. He's really strict. Um, he believed in discipline. He was a sportsman. He played football for Jamaica, cricket for Trinidad. He played squash for Jamaica. And his thing was that whatever you do, you do with authenticity. You do it with determination. You do it with full belief and intensity. And you will get the rewards. So just to give you an example, I used to swim. My sister swam for Jamaica. And I used to swim competitively at the age of six, seven, eight, nine. And then when I was 10 years old, we used to have to go. We went to swimming training every day in the, in the Olympics. The national, it was the Commonwealth Games they had in Jamaica in the 60s. The Commonwealth Games pool was where we trained every day. Every day after school, we used to go to training. But of course, on the way to training, I'd want to stop off and play football with my friends. So sometimes I didn't go to training. And my dad said to me, well, if you're not going to take it seriously and train every day, stop swimming. Because you wanted to, whatever you're going to do, you have to do it with full commitment. So my swimming career ended at the age of about nine or 10 because I wasn't <laughs> dedicated to swimming. But that really stuck with me subliminally because, of course, I fought against the fact that my dad was always being so insistent on you training properly, doing everything properly when I just wanted to have fun. But, of course, it sticks with you as you get older and you then find out that why you are the person you are and why you achieve what you achieve is the way you have been brought up in your formative years. So that really stuck with me. Um, even mm -hmm. when I was a 14-year-old footballer coming to, to England. Well, I came to England at 12, 13, as you say. But my, insofar as my, my first football team was a fantastic football team called Stowe Boys Club. We used to win so many games, five and six and seven nil. But of course, back then, as opposed now, everybody wants to be the superstar. Everybody wants the glory. So nobody wanted to be a defender. So I was a centre-back. So when I was, I've never been a centre-back growing up in Jamaica. I was always an attacking player, but because no one did, my father always said to me, the responsibility to the team is the most important thing. No one wants to play centre-back. So for three years, aged between 13 and 17, four years, I played as a centre-back. When I then went to the men's team, I was never a centre-back. And of course, at 16 years old, you go to a men's team uh, and you're not going to play centre-back against 35-year-old men who are like 15 stone and want to break your teeth. <laughs> so I then started to play left wing, but I was always an attacking player. So it wasn't anything new to me. But what my father always stressed was the responsibility to the team. So mm. as much as people looked at me as an individual, um, that was the, always the way I thought. And I went to the right club in Watford to actually continue that. Was that commitment to the team, that owing something to the team, as well as the discipline, did those two things then, were they fundamental in the level you went on to reach? Absolutely, 100%. Because, of course, I then fortunately went to a manager with Graham Taylor who espoused the same attributes. Regardless of the way that people saw me as a left winger at 17, playing for England at 18, and I'm going to be the so-called superstar of the team, I had to see myself just like my teammates. So my first responsibility for Watford Football Club, since I was 17 years old, is to chase the fullback back. I'm left wing. It's supposed to be, I'm supposed to be going forward and attacking. My first responsibility is to chase the fullback for the team. So as much as, you know, I did what I did, I always recognized what my, what my responsibility was. And my dad knew because being in the army, that's what it's all about. That is why the British army has been the greatest army for the last 500 years. Little Britain can conquer the whole world. Why? Because of the discipline and the togetherness and the belief and the harmony and the organization and the logistical value of being a unit, which is what life is, if you talk about a family perspective, which is what football is, which is what everything is. And a quick word on your mum, because I did enjoy when you said that she used to get you up at six to meditate when you were 12, and which you hated. But you also said she left these subliminal positive messages. So can you just paint a picture of the sort of meditation and the impact it had? And then also what you talked about there in terms of positive messaging. Like how, how, what was she doing? Well, first of all, she would very, speak in a very quiet, quiet tone. 
for me to become transcendental and and as much as I probably felt that I was pretending so that we'd hurry up and finish then I became very calm would sit there quietly for two or three minutes until I was virtually you know in, in, in a trance if you like as much as I was pretending most of the time but I felt very calm and then she would talk about school and talk about discipline and you can do it and just positive images of because they always worried about my schooling because my sisters were very bright and as much as I thought I was bright I didn't like school I didn't study so she thought by putting these messages in into and the interesting thing about that was i did something very similar with graham taylor funnily enough when i went to watford he then took us to a hypnotist um myself and nigel callahan at about 19 years old we had to go before trading at nine o'clock eight o'clock in the morning to this very exotic indonesian woman at our house and she'd sit us down and then she would um talk to us and she would individually he would go on a different day and then she would hypnotize you whereby if you've ever been hypnotized that she says you're relaxed you relax you can feel your hand rising and that's when you know you're hypnotized because your hand is just rising of its own accord and i don't know whether my hand was there i don't know whether i wanted her to shut up so I put my hand there or not then she'd put these subliminal messages about football about doing the right thing and my mother didn't go as far as that in terms of hypnotizing me but she really just talked about positive mental images of success whatever that may be in terms of your school, mainly with my mother in terms of studying. But after a while, we just kept doing it naturally and um, it, 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 it kind of stuck with me. It actually did have a positive benefit. Not on my schoolwork, no, but on the rest <laughs> of my life, yes. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So is there a way parents, teachers, I don't know, anyone could incorporate something like that into being with, but, a, with a young child? From an from a, from a, um, independent point of view, yes. Not, of course, in a classroom, you can't do that with 20 kids. That is an individual thing because, of course, some kids may be more susceptible than others. And in many respects, and in, in, today, in today's age where kids, as my young kids will tell you, they want to live their best life, they won't put up with that, whereas I didn't have a choice. Uh, because, of course, when my father and my mother said, this is what we're doing, this is what we're doing. I say that to my kids now, they go, well, I'm not doing that. And I'm got a choice because, you know, I'm living my best life. I'm going to phone social services. So what can you do to me type of thing? So um, <laughs> it really depends on the individual. Because yeah. to be honest with you, had I, had I had my way, I would not have been going through that. Of but course. I'm glad I did. I don't know what yeah. would have happened had I not. But all I do know is what did happen. And I think a lot of it had to do with that. Uh, it's interesting, the power of how that kind of stuff could potentially power work. Of positive thinking. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we won't go down that road because so I've mixed feelings about the pat of positive thinking. It can and, never work you know, for you then. Possibly. But also, I think, you know, it takes a lot of energy to change negative thinking for positive thinking uh, rather than just seeing that it's just thoughts and you don't actually have to buy into them. That's more my Yes, attitude. because, of course, at your age now and because you're an adult, but maybe if you are six and seven and eight, you may have been conditioned to think that. So it would be much Could easier at a younger age. Oh, yeah, no, course, 100%. That's, that's why I think I asked. I think for someone yeah. growing up when you're when you're more malleable and, and that kind of thing, Absolutely. I think... It'd be difficult for them to do it to me now in yeah. whatever way, shape or form. <laughs> yeah. But back then, I was like a sponge. Uh, and that's uh, why you... I say you can be conditioned to be good, to be bad, to be evil at of that course. particular age. And that is why you look at what happens with child soldiers in Africa. That's the best age to get them. Absolutely. From a, from a negative point of view, because, of course, and if you look at what Pol Pot did in Cambodia, because the kids are the best people who you can manipulate. Absolutely. Like uh, uh, Nelson Mandela, I think, said, you know, no babies born, racist, sexist, you know, nothing. Homophobic, like all, yeah. Homophobic. These all are all learned traits. They're, they're all learned traits. And so the key for me is either learning to not identify with them or it's an unlearning, essentially. But yeah. um, we'll get into all that, John. A quick word on Graham Taylor, because 
I um, traveled around Ukraine and Poland with um, Graham in 2012. Hmm. And, and this does relate a bit to, I think, what you talk about in your book um, about hierarchies and putting people on a pedestal and others lower. And at that time, so I was working for Radio One. So within the BBC hierarchy, I was, let's say, at the bottom. So it went TV at the top. Then it went like five live commentators, then reporters, producers. And then I was the only person. So I was at the bottom, right? You're the, you're the tea maker. Well, I mean, I was still allowed to talk on the radio, but also yeah, if, a bit some, above the tea makers. if, if <laughs> someone was going to be sent to make tea, it probably would have been me anyway. But we, we had to get a bus to one of the stadiums and I was legging it because my broadcast had finished. And I got there and I'm all sweating and all this kind of stuff. And all the reporters, all the presenters, I won't name names, but yeah, yeah. they all were like, just didn't give a monkeys and were just like shut off. And I was there. Anyway, I'll never forget it. Graham Taylor just stood over me. He's like, it's all right, son. Calm down. Take your time. It's fine. We're not going to leave you. I was like, this is the loveliest man I've ever met. And do you know what? He was genuinely, I would say, one of the loveliest men I've ever met in my life. Absolutely. Um, and another thing that I think we'll come on to as well, the media, which you talk about a lot. When I did speak to him about the way he was treated by the media, you could see 20 years odd later how it had really hurt him. him. It was like he he was still traumatised by it. But he was a truly wonderful man, wasn't he? Well, of course. And that is typical of Graham Taylor because Graham Taylor understood from his days at Lincoln and Watford that we are all equally as important as each other. So therefore, the superstar players, to the reserves, to the woman who made the tea, to the fans, it was a real community because he understood for Watford to be successful, we have to have the support of our local community. So we had to devote 14 hours a week in our contracts to community service. That's nothing, community service now is only do something wrong and going to jail. But back then, we had to do lots of charitable work. We had to mix with the community. We couldn't be... Um, supercilious towards the fans in terms of we're superstars, we're not signing autographs, we're not going to do anything. In the, in, and he understands that because he recognizes that that is what brings success to everybody. Now, of course, his problem was then all of a sudden when you go to a much bigger club or managing England where you have different characters like Gaza and other people who you possibly have to treat differently for whatever reason, whereas Graham Taylor, he treats everybody the same. So he would treat you the same way that he treats the reporter or he treats the, the CEO of the company because that's what he believes in. You know, and that is the way I've been brought up with my family and that's the way I've been brought up with Graham Taylor. And even mm. when I went to Liverpool, it was similar. As much as Liverpool is a huge institution with fans all over the world and they're superstars, it is a very socialist environment from which Bill Shankly started in terms of recognising the importance of the Liverpool family being the fans, the respect that you have to have for the city, the shirt they actually wear, your, your so-called lesser teammates. So I had lots of um, great influences um, pertaining to that, that that way of thinking. Now, your book is called The Uncomfortable Truth About Racism. But actually, for me, it speaks about a lot more than that. It speaks mm. about our propensity for mental hierarchies, for putting people on a pedestal, for, you know, you use the word elite a lot. But I would say, you know, treating others as having more worth than, mm. than other people. So... What really came out for me, and I'm going to ask you, you know, for your kind of summary, is that that understanding really that intrinsically all of our worth, whoever you are, whether you are John Barnes, PFA Player of the Year, through to a homeless person on the street to person who delivers your mail, blah, blah, blah. All of our worth is on a level. It's, it's intrinsic. It's innate. It can't be aggrandized. Or lesson. That's very much my view. But yeah, we've got that out of whack. 
and I get the sense that's your take on it as well. Yes, because of course, fortunately for John Barnes, football is popular. But someone who's much more committed, much more talented than Tiddlywinks won't get it because no one likes Tiddlywinks. So <laughs> why am I worth more than him? Because I lose something that's popular. Yeah. You see, so we ha- and these are things that are out of our control. We have no choice over. So in terms of the way we see, so I've always said, even if you don't want to look at it from a footballing perspective, I've always said that we can't help the way the fans see us, but we can help the way we see ourselves. And I'll use Ian Rush and Kenny Dalglish as an example when they play for Liverpool. The fans will always put them on a pedestal ahead of Sammy Lee and Jimmy Case or whoever. But they don't see themselves that way because they understand what's necessary for success is for everybody to be on the same level. Because Ian Rush can't score a hat-trick and be successful if the opposition score four goals because we would have lost 4-3. But unfortunately, some people feel they're successful as long as they do what's right for themselves. Yeah. So to your point that regardless of whether it's John Barnes doing what he did or it's a homeless person, that our worth is really the way we are, are seen by ourselves in relation to other people because we can't control the way other people see us. Now, just as an example of that, Liverpool fans would say, John Barnes is great. He's the best player ever. Man United fans go, no, he's not. He's rubbish. What is he? What's the reality? The reality is that I do what I do with authenticity. And if people like me, they do. If they don't, they don't. But the reality of who we actually are is that we're exactly the same. And the bit in the book, I suppose, where I don't know if you remember, it's where I said, like living in an elevator. That's the truth. Yeah, tell that story because I I love that story. Yeah, because so you talk about having this eureka moment. So you speak about you spent a lot of time traveling. You, yeah. You've read a lot of books, you know, uh, Noam Chomsky's had a, a big impact on you. And I'd like to find out what that is, but for time's sake. And then you have this eureka moment, which is we're all the same, right? I mean, and this is what I'm talking about. So I, I often use the analogy of, of, you know, when a babies are born, it's obvious. It's obvious that their, their value is innate for starters and the same, right? But you had this moment in airport. So first of all, mm. can you tell me about that eureka moment? And then tell me the lift story, because I, in brief, because I think it does sum it up brilliantly. Well, I suppose, you know, if I'm traveling around, obviously, and I've been to Iraq, Afghanistan, I've traveled everywhere. And of course, because in the last, from 2011, I started going to South Africa one week a month, 12 times a year. I want to go via different countries. I wouldn't fly with the same airlines. So, you know, I go via Amsterdam, I go via Nigeria, I go all over. And you meet so many different people, different cultures. And ultimately... When the plane's late, everybody's pissed off. And, you know, when the babies are crying, babies, my baby is crying and somebody... So we are all the same. We get angry. We get upset. Um, so first of all, that's when we're all the same. Then secondly, when, of course, you then... Because we do have this perception since 9-11 of people um, who look a certain way and they may have a rucksack on their back on a plane, we know what people may think about that. And, of course, when somebody comes up to me, if I'm in an airport, like when I was in Kabul, for example... And then all of a sudden they come, they're approaching me and I get a little bit um, apprehensive as they come towards me. And as soon as they come up to me, they go, I saw the game last week. And I think that, <laughs> you know, um, that goal shouldn't have stood and Liverpool are doing great and we don't like the Man United fans. I'm thinking, well, you're just like everybody else. You're just like me. What's the difference between us? So that is really the essence of the book about yeah. how we are all the same in terms yeah, yeah. of the feelings we actually have, what we go through, as much as culturally may be different. But that is where if you use football as an example, it really does bring us together and it can really make us feel at one with yeah. each other. And of course, the Liv story. <laughs> on, it's a cracker. The Queen and Donald Trump. It goes on for too long. You've got to read it. The Queen <laughs> of Donald Trump and we get in the lift. I suppose it's... I mean, I can tell this story first. Okay, so, see, see if you can do it in a minute. Go on, John. So Donald Trump, the Queen, everybody gets in the lift. They're all standing apart. You've got the CIA looking after Donald Trump. The Queen's A's looking after him. You've got the homeless person. You've got the black guy. And everybody's in the lift. We're going up and down, avoiding each other. The lift gets stuck. And then after 
five minutes, people are still in their little groups because they still feel that, well, you know, the aides have to look after Donald Trump, the CIA is guarding Donald Trump, the aides are guarding the Queen. After two hours, all changes because the CIA are fed up looking after Donald Trump. They want to go and talk to the black guy. The Queen's aides are going to talk to somebody else. The Queen's are talking to the, the woman who works in Tesco's about how many kids she has. And then this goes on. If you're stuck in the lift, the longer you are actually stuck together, the more you will then just deteriorate into everyone just being hot and smelly in a lift. <laughs> and then as soon as the lift starts to work again, you go downstairs, it opens, everybody does their tie-up, the queen puts their crown on, the aides come back to her, and then we go out into the real, what we consider to be the real world, whereby the expectations of us is that the queen has to ignore the homeless person, Donald Trump has to racially abuse somebody else, and the aides have to... So that's really the essence of it. But it's, 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 it's much more comprehensive in the book, but you gave me a minute. So that's really the but gist I, of it. I thought you summed it up very well there, John. But it, I mean, it, that, that's reality. And I'll tell you why, because as a footballer, when people first of all meet me, and it's like, oh, there's John Barnes, the footballer, and you know, he has to have a certain way. Then after they meet with four hours and we're still in the pub having a drink, they say he's a pain in the ass because he just keeps going on about his kids or whatever. And he's a normal person. Of course. You know, where the perception they have of me is that I'm a superstar who just goes to Hollywood and, you know, flies private jets. But after meeting me for a while, and that's the same for everybody, because no matter who you are, from Cristiano Ronaldo, you spend the same time, enough time with Cristiano Ronaldo, he'll stop being Cristiano Ronaldo and just being the pain in the ass back person who just keeps brushing his hair in the mirror or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think, I think what um, I find quite interesting is um, when it does go to someone's head, and I don't know to what degree it did go to your head when, you know, at the height of, of your powers. But so the people I have... Let me tell you why it didn't go to my head. If I go may go yes, yeah, go for it. I remember when I was like 18 years old, 19 years old, I started playing for England. And the press had a, a different attitude towards me when I played for England, I played for Watford. They loved me for Watford because they liked the idea of the underdog doing well. So when Watford were finishing second in the league and beating Tottenham, beating Arsenal, they're telling me I was great and blah, blah, blah. Then with England, things weren't going well and they're telling me I'm terrible. So I had a, a bit of an issue with that. And then Graham Taylor pulled me to the side and he said, you know when the press tell you how great you are when you play for Watford, how fantastic you are? He said, do you believe them? And he says, if you believe them, you're going to have to believe them when they tell you you're crap as well. So don't believe when they praise you. Don't believe when they don't praise you. Yeah? Well, cracking you, advice. Yeah, yeah. So, so don't get carried away when people tell you how great you are because that's what we want. We want people to tell us how great we are and believe that, but we don't want to believe the bad bits. Yeah. So you can't have it both ways. You know, you no. make your own mind up as to who you think you are. And the people who really trust you, love you, and believe in you, you trust them. You don't trust people who have no interest in you whatsoever, who can, for their own agenda, either praise you or, or discriminate against you or tell you you're, you're terrible. I can't remember who it was I've had on recently who talked about the propensity in this country to go way overboard on both praise and derogatory criticism. I mean, yeah. our, our media is... England, England is crazy for that. Yeah, our media is why. pretty exacerbated. Look, so therefore you have Jaden Sancho, you have Jude Billingham, who've got to go to Germany to play, and now we're praising them. But had they been in their own country and stayed here at 18, 19, put them in the team, we would have said how great they were after two after two months. And then if they had a couple of bad games, we could have destroyed them. I used Theo Walcott as an example. When he went to the World Cup at 16 and we told him how great he was and how brilliant he was, we gave him so much so soon, so much praise so soon that all of a sudden he, he probably felt he didn't need to improve. And he was the same player when he got to 26, 27. Oh. That is why they handled them in Germany much better, no matter how good you are. And to give an example of Liverpool, when I first went to Liverpool, Liverpool, and this is how football was generally in those days, they looked at you over a period of time to show you had that consistency over a five, six, seven-year period before you came to Liverpool. You didn't have one good game or one good season and they signed you because they wanted to show that when, they, when it matters, you have to be able to be consistent in that. Whereas in football now, a young player plays well for six good games, he costs £50 million, pounds, then you see how inconsistent he is. 
And that is what we do in England. That is why a lot of these young players do better when they go abroad. But why can't they do that in this country? Why can Jude Bellingham and Jaden Sancho stay in this country, develop slowly at their clubs, be given an opportunity, don't give them too much praise to maybe, maybe go to their head? But this is what we do in England. The media is a bit OTT in that regard in this country. But in terms of, you said Cristiano Ronaldo, you spend time with him, you realise he's a normal person, right? No, I haven't. But I'm no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, as, yeah. as an example, right? And, and you know, I, I agree with you. And I think, so the people I admire or I enjoy speaking to are the people who perhaps have achieved great things. And I'm not saying that that makes them any better than someone who hasn't achieved great things, right? But still retain that humility who you can relate to on a normal level. And there are certain people who I won't have on because I know I've seen them like at commentaries or whatever, yeah, yeah, who've yeah. got that kind of, and you'll know the type, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. peacock, the, the kind of, I'm a bit special, the big I am kind of thing, you know, and it's actually quite tragic. You know, I remember telling you know, the interesting thing, the interesting thing about that, sorry to interrupt you. That's all right. Is that the real superstars, the majority of the real superstars aren't like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah. the ones who are the level below who, who need that, character to make themselves seem like superstars or yeah. to tell other people that they're superstars when they weren't so you meet the greatest players in the world and you find that they're very humble i yeah. suppose if you look at tennis players and people like that it's the same because they don't need their character after they finished to elevate their status of what they actually did when they played because he speaks for itself whereas there are people yeah. who weren't particularly great but for you to think they're great their character now that they've retired has to be larger than life so then you elevate them above the reality of where they actually are yeah so it's born of insecurity, essentially, you know, that Absolutely. kind of uh, egotistical, you know, the big I am. Anytime you see someone swanning around, you know that hovering somewhere underneath is a bit of insecurity. Absolutely, in 100%. Because 100%. like you said, and I want to keep hammering this point, because, and you do as well, is we're all the same. Everyone's the, the same. same. You know, and, and so, but, and, and there's a line in the book as well, you talk about, you know, currently society, we have this fixation on celebrity or... And we obviously put now fo football players are very much part of that. Musicians, um, you know, whoever else actors. you want to add. Actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, whoever you want to add to the list. And we put them on a thing and, and sort of deify them. like they're. Yeah. But, but it's a load of old cobblers, isn't it? It is. And what I've always done, and I think people should do, is separate who you are and what you are. So what John Barnes was, was if people believe that I was a good footballer, a great footballer, and I won player of the year and all of that, that's fine. That's, I'm brilliant and I'm great. But who I am is a normal person who has to go to Tesco's and go to the shops and I'm stuck in a lift with people and I'm a hot and sweaty as anybody else. And I've always felt that way. But unfortunately, when people get mixed up with who they are and what they are, totally. because if I felt who I was was what I was, I would be one of the greatest people in the world and people wouldn't be able to come and talk to me and I need security around me because I'm great because that's the way I'm treated as a footballer, as a privileged person. So I completely separate the two. Totally. And now that I'm not a footballer anymore, it was quite comfortable and easy for me to just go back being who I always was. Whereas a lot of people who buy into who thinking that who they are is what they are when they aren't that anymore because they've retired from acting or football or whatever celebrity dumb that they were in and then all of a sudden they aren't treated or fetid in the same way they get nervous breakdowns and they, they have mental health issues because people don't want to know them anymore. So I yeah. knew, and I knew from an early age that because I saw the way when I was at Watford, that the fans, the public, everybody treated the, the older players who weren't playing anymore. They didn't want to know them. They had nothing to do with them. Even the clubs don't want anything to do with them. And I thought to myself as a superstar, 23 year old, when I'm retired, that could be me. Yeah, now, yeah. if it's not me, and it isn't because I'm still affiliated with Liverpool and people may know me, so thank you very much. I'm grateful for it. But if it happened that that was me, it wouldn't be an issue with me because I knew at 23 that 
if it doesn't happen to me, I'm very lucky and privileged. So thank you very much. But if it happens to me, that's life. That's such a good point. That mixing up of who we are with what we do. It's so common, isn't it? And not just amongst the superstars. It's the mm. its the classic dinner party question, isn't it? What do you do? I'm sure... But in... No matter how good you are at that, if you do something that nobody's interested in and you're the best person in the world, you still won't get any praise or any, any kudos for it. But so it has to be something that's popular. Exactly, yeah. So it has to be in, right? And football yeah. just happens to be in, right? Happens let's, to be in. Let's take yeah. that. So I remember Alan de Bottin, he had quite an interesting view about how we're snobs, but not in the classic way of royalty back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but snobs in terms of what we do. Like you just alluded to there, you go to a dinner party and say, so what do you do? And they go, I don't know. I don't want to say any particular job just in case I upset someone. Yeah. But let's just say a run-of-the-mill job, right? And then, you know, in, immediately in the head, someone often might go, oh, okay, this person's not worth speaking to. Yeah. Because it's so common because of mixing up like who we are with what we do. So my question then as well to you, and I think you, you you've already kind of answered it, but... There's a really interesting survey that was done by the BBC a few years ago about how over 50% or around 50% of retiring athletes suffer quite bad mental health issues. Yeah. To what degree then do you think that stems, as you alluded to already, from that, this is who I am, and without that, I'm nothing? Well, there are two aspects of that. There are the athletes who are, this is who I am, and without that, I'm nothing which means that I'm so invested in what I actually do that I don't believe that I can cope or survive without it. So when I don't have it anymore, I struggle. Or some of them, and I think this happens to do a lot of them, is this is the way that the public perceives me. And when they don't perceive me like this anymore, I'm going to struggle with that. And they're two different things. So for example, if I just love football so much that after I finished playing football, I couldn't cope because football was my life and I loved it, then you can think, well, that's, there's one dynamic. Or I just love the way people treat me because they treat me so well because I'm a footballer. I don't really love football, but they treat me so well. So I, I, I prefer the way, I love the way they treat me and they're not going to treat me like this anymore. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a bit special. Football. I'm a bit so, special. So, yeah. so you can be special because of what you love to do and you know you're a good footballer and you can say, I don't care about the praise. I just love playing football and if I can't do it anymore, I'll struggle. Or I just love the praise and if I don't get the praise anymore, I'm going to struggle. They're two different things. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people um, are probably more like the second one where they yeah. prefer the adulation and the praise and yeah. if they don't get that anymore then they struggle and if you're able to separate who you are from what you do you are to some degree if not wholly immune from falling victim to that absolutely because it's the same thing like you know don't be a, 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 a victim to not only your success but don't hold on too much in terms of the put a ceiling on your desires because you can then say you know you love and we all like the good life we all want a nice car and a nice house but then if it disappeared are we, can we still be happy? Yeah. And we can, depending on, on the way you think. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about the way people see you. It's also you, the material things that you gain that will give you a lot of kudos in terms of the car you drive and the way you walk around and the hotels you have to stay in and you have to go first class. So therefore, when I finish playing, for example, and as much as I'm an ambassador for Liverpool and I, I, I do a lot of things for, for corporations and companies and someone's going to send me on a train or send me on a plane and if they're going to send me economy on the plane or economy on the train, it's not an issue to me. I won't think I have to go first class and if I don't, of course, it's nice if they do it, but if they don't, I'm not going to be put out. Whereas I know certain people would want a certain car, want a certain plane ticket, they want a certain hotel. Um, you know, if there's an Ibis next to the station for 50 quid, I'll want to say in the Ibis, it's no big deal. If you're going to give me a nice hotel in Mayfair for a thousand pounds, I'll also take that. But if that's not available, I'm quite happy with whatever you're going to give me.
Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm not saying that I'm just a man of the people who, you know, I don't care where I stay. I don't care where I stay, but I don't demand anything else. And I feel privileged and honored if I could get a nicer hotel. Um, but if I can't, it's not an issue. Whereas some people, I'm not doing that unless I have the best hotel, the best cars, the best, you know, train tickets and plane tickets and first class. So I'm very comfortable. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you think you're a bit of a philosopher, John? We are all philosophers, aren't we? Good answer. We're all authors. We're all philosophers because we're all footballers and football managers and tennis players. We, 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 we believe we can do everything. But what I won't do, that's why when I wrote this book, I then said, I'm doing it myself. So it wasn't ghostwritten. And I said, it is not a, an academic book. But in terms of people saying um, that it's like even historically incorrect and, you know, from a, from a data point of view, you know, your percentages are wrong. I said, I'm not really interested in that. I want to get my point across and I want to get it across to the average person who can understand it. That's why I wrote it in the way I wrote it, because it's for the average person to understand. You read a lot of books like this. They're all intellectual books with so many big words. People don't understand it. They're going to shut the door. This book is for the average person with average speak, average speech. <laughs> um, if you had to summarize the point in a sentence, a couple of sentences, a paragraph, of what you're trying to say, the key message, what would it be? <laughs> well, first of all, it's understanding discrimination, how and why it came about through indoctrination, lies we've told about different groups of people, because I mentioned women and gays in the same breath in terms of how we have been conditioned to think about different groups um, over the years. We have been lied about the the, the competency and the moral value of, of, of black people, women, gay people. and also, the fact that the solution is not to elevate more superior black people in positions of power, because that's been done for hundreds of years for different groups, and that hasn't worked, is to change the negative perception of blackness. Not to elevate people out of that negative space, like Obama or me, or Theresa May as a woman, or a famous gay person, and believe that that's the solution to the problem, and pat ourselves on the back because we have more black people in positions of power, black managers, because until we change the average, the perception of the average person, nothing will change. That's why I use the white working class in this. 
Mm. Because white working class people are exploited as well and disenfranchised and discriminated against. And that's not racism towards white working class people. That's to do with class or to do with culture or to do with the North-South divide or to do with language. So I have it from an intersectionality point of view in putting the women, all the disenfranchised group together. And they say they should come together and understand that ultimately it's about power. So, it's about power. So, OK, we'll come to the PowerPoint, but really what you're advocating or not advocating, what you're suggesting uh, is that it should be more of a kind of a bottom up approach, whereas right Absolutely. now there's a top down approach. Not, not right now. Always has been. Always has been. Always has been. From the Magna Carta a thousand years ago, the barons and the lords said, let me get more power from the king by doing what's right for the common man. Common man never benefited. French Revolution, American Revolution, Haitian Revolution, civil rights. It's always about getting more elite people from the disenfranchised groups into the elite world while still discriminating against even your own people, but 90% of them who are down below you. And we've been doing that for years. And if you want an example of why that hasn't worked, just look throughout history. Nothing has changed. And use the white working class as an example. Nothing has changed for them in a thousand years. When you had a white working class man 500 years ago saying, once I get more power, I'll help you, it hasn't helped him. <laughs> so why do we feel as black people that's going to help? Why do we feel as women that's going to help? You had Theresa May. Has anything changed for women? Obama. Has anything changed for black people in America? So that is not the solution. We have to start doing it from the bottom up. And how do we do that? First of all, we then deconstruct why we feel negatively towards those people in the first place. Be they black, be they women, because of the lies we have been told about their worth intellectually and morally. A gay man's ability to fight in a war, a, a black person's ability to lead, not from a sporting perspective, boxing and football and intellectually, and a woman's capabilities in leading a Fortune 500 country. Sorry, Fortune 500 company. Now, this is relatively new because you had, when you had slavery, for example, if you want to talk about racism, slavery, originally slavery was about a black elite in Africa coming together with a white elite to do some trade to benefit each other to the detriment of 90% of people. But it wasn't about black being inferior because you had a black elite who were aligned with a white elite to discriminate against, and the white elite were discriminating against white working classes, but not in a slavery perspective. Then after that happened... Then when colonialism came about, and this is, where you, this is where racism really started, not through slavery, through colonialism. Because through colonialism, that's when Europe went to Africa. And once you had a black elite in slavery who were negotiating on a level playing field, once colonialism, colonialism happened, the black elite then disintegrated because Europeans took over Africa. And that's when the idea of a homogenous black inferiority came about. Because before, before 400 years ago, you had black Roman generals and you had black leaders worldwide and the idea because the idea of whiteness didn't exist 500 years ago you know the white working class weren't the same race as the white upper class they were considered to be separate races so the idea of race as we know it now has only been around for the last three four hundred years so therefore if we understand how and why it came about which was about power and which was about to, to discriminate and exploit a certain group of people so the essence of the book i suppose is we want to stop discriminating based on religion race sexuality, gender. Now, once we stop doing that, you're still going to have black people, women, gay people who will still be unequal, but it won't be because they're black or because they're a woman or because there'll be other dynamics, namely what we are naturally endowed with, the character that we have. 
So we have been lied to in terms of someone's worth from a racial point of view, from a gender point of view, from a sexist point of view. So not to say that once we have equal opportunities that all black people now are going to be doctors and lawyers, you'll still have everybody, 90% of black people still will be exploited and discriminated against, but it won't be because they're black. It'll be because of other reasons. They may not be able to, from an intellectual point of view or from whatever point of view. But at the moment, we have, on top of them being discriminated against for different reasons, they're also discriminated against because of the negative perception of them being black, of women being women, of gay people being gay people, of northerners being northern, of travelers being travelers. So once we get rid of all of that, it's not as if the world's going to come together and be a better place because everyone's going to be equal, but at least it'll be better where people will then be judged on something real. And that's just their innate ability or inabilities. Let me get this right. So obviously we want to stop judging worthiness on class, gender, religion, race, etc., etc. right? But then you said, and then we start judging on, on abilities. Um, yeah. But the problem surely with that is Joe Bloggs next door or Jane Doe, the other side, happens to have been born without, let's say, not a particularly high IQ. Perhaps physically they're not hugely able. Then do you see what I'm getting at? It's, right. it's like so, so, so what happens is then this is the way the world is. It's an imperfect world. Yeah. So what will then happen is that if, you, if you're not prepared to wake up at six o'clock in the morning to go to work, you're not going to get a job. So not to do with you're black, you're a woman, whereas at the moment you can tell me that, you know, black people, they're being discriminated because of that. Now, that is why we're gonna, we live, in, a, we live in, a, in an imperfect world, but that is better than the way it is now. It's a bit like saying, who do we put in power? Do we put in power people who are going to exploit us or people who are not going to exploit us? That's not going to happen. You know who we should put in power? The people who are going to exploit us less because they're going to exploit us. So who do we discriminate against? We have to discriminate against someone because that is what human beings have always done. That's how we've survived. Because we're not the strongest. We're not the biggest. Lions are stronger than us. Other things are. So you're looking for a utopia whereby we're all equal. And that's not the reality. Because there are certain people who are enamored. And depending on what it takes for your society to be successful, which means that if you live in a society, an agrarian society, for example, where you need all farmers to wake up and go to, to, to the farm, they're the ones who will get more than everybody else. It's just as an example, because someone who doesn't want to do that, then they won't get as much as the farmers, as an example. So I think what you're saying is that why do we have to judge someone on something? This is how the world is. But if we say this is how the world is, I mean, you could... Well, all... they could be provided for. Those people who haven't got legs and those people who can't do whatever they are, we have to also provide for them. Yeah. Now, see, and that, that is why. That, that's that's a... the point. And that's in the book. We have to provide yeah, for them. Yeah, yeah, And that course. is where we talk about someone like Candace Owens. Um, I don't know if you know Candace yeah, Owens. Yeah, 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 yeah. And a lot of people like her, black Republicans in America... Pull yourself up by the bootstraps type uh, stuff, Yeah, and I've yeah. come from the same place that you have. Now, they're fortunate for whatever reason. They could be a single-parent family. You know, the mum and dad are split up and they didn't have any electricity, but they had that character that meant that they could do that now good for them well done but that lucky mean, for them as well lucky, lucky for them for as them. well for whatever reason and it doesn't when they say lucky for them but they'll say i didn't have any luck because we didn't have any money when but, i was but, kids. But, but but her a character just but just exactly. by the end of her having that character and perhaps exactly. like the looks the brains that there's luck in that yes yeah. but even if it's not even if it's not looks whatever it is or fortune, you're lucky you know what yeah, I mean? you're lucky to be able to come out of your the negative experiences that you actually have so therefore but what she says is that because I did it, everybody can do it. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't, you know, give them benefits and stuff like that. Now, that's fine. So if somebody has, is able to do that, good for you. But what happens to the rest? Because 90% of people aren't like that. So, but that is what we should do as a society, help the less fortunate than ourselves. Because I say, for example, the whole idea about, you know, from a racial point of view that we need more black people in power and then that will help the people down below. If you want to just break it down and you say, in a family, mom, dad, 
who are the leaders, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids who are the children. When the family is hungry, who eats first? The mum and dad or the children? Good question. Kiddies. The kiddies got to eat first. But that's not what our black leaders are saying. Our black leaders, who are the leaders, are saying, give me more and then I'll help you. Yeah. Rather than saying, listen, John Barnes is okay. I want to be a manager. And, you know, maybe there's a racial discrimination. That's why we don't have many black managers. But I've got a house. I've got a car. I'm fine. This is very much like the, or, and, you know, people say, a lot of the black elites say we have to do both, which is right. We have to do both, but we're not doing both. We're focusing solely on Stormzy getting an Oscar, Raheem Sterling not getting racial abuse, someone else getting a, you know, a BAFTA award, and we need more black people on television, and we need more black elites, and that will help the masses. It's the other way around. It has to be the bottom up. Yeah. It has to be the bottom up. So, yeah. unfortunately, a lot of people feel that, 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 that that's the solution. Now, we have to do both. You know what that's like? Black lives matter. All lives matter. Because all lives does matter. However, there's something more pressing and more urgent for us to address than all lives matter. And that is our people whose lives seem to matter less than everybody else. So we have to do both. What's more important? John Barnes to be a manager or kids to stop stabbing each other in the inner cities, being able to be given a, a better um, equal opportunity from educational, social services and housing point of view, mm. or for Stormzy to get an Oscar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, we have to do both, but which is more urgent? Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... But I mean, the, the comparison is, is almost absurd, isn't it? But while you say the comparison is absurd, what do we see in the papers every day? Do we read about solutions well, exactly, to that problem? But that's... Or do does football say the problem is the Hungarian um, fans and the Romanian official and the 12-year-old racist football fans? That Hulga Hungarian and Bulgarian racist fans, they have no influence or power over knife crime, over inequalities in the inner cities, can go and get jobs and education. But in the papers every day, that's what we're focusing on. And we're telling the, white, the black working class people that the problem you have is because Raheem Sterling was racially abused in Hungary that's why you're in the position you're in you said about a minute ago about the reality of the situation and that you know this is the world we live in it's not perfect something I think that perhaps it doesn't get mentioned a lot though is is in your book is the reality then of the way our minds work and the way our brains work so for example and I'm going to just read a quote here I dug one out from a biologist and behavioral scientist a guy called Robert Sapolsky yeah High credentials by all accounts. And he says, primates are hired wired for us, them dichotomies. Our yes. brain detects them in less than 100 milliseconds. So if on the one hand, you're like, the world that we live in is imperfect and discrimination will happen. Well, our minds also are prone to leap to judgment. Now, just to, as a quick add on to that, I would just say like, and you talk about this is like, we all have biases. Mm. And I think that's such a good point. We all do it. Yeah. And it's so easy, isn't it? Like you see on social media being like, it's almost laughable where you get that. Like if you're, you know, that whole kind of scapegoating thing, which you, yeah, 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 about, yeah, yeah. you know, which is, yeah. you know, this person's bad. Yeah. Because in saying that, what they're also saying is, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. But for me, it's like the propensity of the brain to be tribal, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But I do think as well, you then get a choice whether or not to buy into those thoughts. I'm aware of the thought. I'm not my thought, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. And then so therefore, I don't have to buy into it. But yeah. yeah, I'm just, we do have this hard wiring in our brain to to leap to, everyone does, don't okay. they? Okay, well, let me tell you, the hard wiring in your brain, yeah, that has also been conditioned over a period of time, because yeah, I'll yeah, explain totally. why. Yeah. So, you... Meet a black man. What color are your eyes? Blue. Blue. You meet a black man with blue eyes. You meet a white man with brown eyes. 
Why don't you identify with a black man with blue eyes? Because the gene that makes you and him have blue eyes should, should make you the same. Why just why is skin color a marker on on identity? And I'll tell you why. Because genetically, there is some black West Africans who are genetically closer to white Northern Europeans than they are to black East Africans. Not the gene that makes them black, but in other ways. Yeah. And now that we know that, why aren't West Africans the same race as, as, as Scandinavians? Because they're closer genetically to East Africans. So this gene that makes you black has been such an obvious marker of discrimination, which has been created in the last 300 years to then say you are different to him, that people yeah. are bought into it. And we've been hardwired then to identify yeah. with that. And then now, that the conditioning see, pops up that in conditioning, our heads. Because what happens now is that you look at black, at kids that... Um, in London, for example, now, I'm a first generation, I'm born in Jamaica, but anyway, say my kids or, or my compatriots when I first came, whose parents would have come from the Caribbean. They still would have had an identity with the Caribbean or Africa, but four generations, three generations down the line, you've got black, white, Chinese, Asian kids who are now Londoners. They speak a certain language, they wear the same color, they identify with each other. Why aren't they the same race? Why should they be, why should John Terry and Anton Ferdinand, who both drive um, Bentleys, both listen to Tiny Temper, both drink crystal champagne, listen to the music they listen to. Why aren't they the same race? Why is John Terry the same race as a, East, as a Russian who's got nothing in common with, apart from the fact that they're both white? Yeah. When you talk, so, and this is what it was. It was cultural. It wasn't about black, white, Chinese. It was cultural, where you have an elite group of people one might be black, one might be white, one might be Russian, but they identify with each other. And in the last 300 years, that has completely changed. And as much as you say we are hardwired to think it, we have become conditioned to think that way. And yeah. we can recondition our minds about anything. All we're hardwired to do is eat and sleep and procreate and die. That's what, because all human beings are exactly the same. They're no different races, they're no different species. There are lots of different species of other animals, but we are all the same. We have been conditioned to think in terms of from a tribal perspective because there was only one tribe, the human tribe. Yeah. So why are there so many different tribes now? Because of power, because of control, because when you had to dominate different people in a particular region, you have to create this perception of the other, but he's exactly the same as you. Of course. There are lots of different species and, of different and that's, animals. I, that's, that's, I think, the, the gist of what I'm saying is that, is that understanding that, you know, the more, for example, you know, different cultures come together the more this comes down because you realize yes. like like yes. in, like you said when you're in the airport you realize however, everyone's the same absolutely however because we now live in a capitalist worldwide economy which really supplements and is completely intertwined the dominant capitalist western forces will always be more than well, we got rid of communism, didn't we? And socialism doesn't work. So therefore, we know the group that is dominating. So for example, and the problem you have is that look at a country like Venezuela, China, there's certain countries, China took 300 people out of, 300 million people out of poverty through, through socialism. And there are certain countries which um, are better suited to socialism. Because of course, we're on a different trajectory economically, um, culturally than other countries, which means that we don't need socialism because everybody, nobody's starving, nobody's being killed. We can all, so therefore we can say, let's have a little bit more. But for some countries, they just want to be able to feed their people. Now, because they have to interact with this Western capitalist big brother, if the Western capitalists decide that Venezuela, for example, we don't want you to be socialist because you've got the most oil in the world, you nationalize an oil industry and that's going to help your people. But we want to exploit that we then can't have you being successful. We can't have Cuba being successful, and which is why the, the fall of the, of, of, of the Iron Curtain, because even Russia and China then understood that we cannot take them on, so we have to join them. So China is still a communist country. How many millionaires do they have in China and Russia? Because in the world we live in, we now live in a world where, where we have to exploit people, regardless of what we feel.
And if we don't, we will suffer. Uh, are you familiar with the work of Eckhart Tolle? No. Okay. He's very much more about the ego, the dysfunction of the human ego, right? Which mm. is comparison to other identification with, for example, like you were saying earlier, what we do, us and them, the need to be right, for example, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, he says that... Is it, that need to be right? Sorry to interrupt. Is that need to be right the same as the British government telling the Bangladeshi government that their interpretation of their law means that Shemaima Begum can be um, a Bangladeshi t- citizen? You could certainly argue that. Yeah, absolutely. How can a Bangladeshi lawyer argue with English law no more than England to then say that we interpreted your law, which would mean that something that you don't agree with, but we know this to be right because we're from Bangladesh. <laughs> I mean, you certainly could argue that case, John. <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to give my... Anyway, I'm, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 no. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a valid point, you know, but the ego that everyone has, right? And the dysfunction of the ego and, and our need to sort of outgrow the ego. Ego is part of the problem why there is this obsession with power, with, yeah. with oh, I, I, you know, us and them and or I'm superior. You know, it's like, can I give you a quick example, John, right? So the example of self-esteem, right? People talk mm. about self-esteem, right? How Absolutely. do you judge self-esteem? You judge Pride. self-esteem in comparison to another. So Pride. I prefer talking about self-acceptance or self, self-compassion, self that kind of thing, because it's not in comparison to anyone else, right? So for me, therefore, it's less egoic. Empathy as opposed to sympathy. Empathy as opposed to sympathy. Yeah, absolutely. So there's something I think in that I think it's time perhaps we we started to outgrow. And again, I'm a bit perhaps uh, idyllic in my thinking. I agree with you. That that we need to outgrow. But to have wholesale change along those lines is going to take a long time because that's for the individual to come up with that. Because also when you talk about an ego, um, who has the biggest egos? The victors. Well, I know who the victors yeah. are. Yeah, yeah, of course. So you can have people who may have a big ego, but they're not able, that ego is not a, a, able to help them. Yeah. That ego is not able to help them because of the reality, or not the reality, the unrealistic ideas behind who people think they are. Exactly, right? Who, who people think they are, right? Which is just a load of thoughts, which is never a reflection of reality. Now, John, I'm, I'm loving chatting to you, but I'm slightly conscious of time. So a couple of things I do want to talk to you about. One is, I want to get onto that whole scapegoating thing, because I think you give such an interesting take on that. But also, just this acknowledgement that we all have bias in us, or rather, our minds pick up biases along the way and then could regurgitate them in various forms. You know, it comes in so many forms. But just this importance that we need, and I think you do argue it so really nicely, to understand that for anyone to say that their mind does not discriminate is kidding themselves. Well, um, unfortunately for us, you have Dr. Tony Sewell with the Commission for Racial Disparities official report because black people demanded a black man go on that so he can tell it our way. And Dr. Tony Sewell said unconscious bias doesn't exist. So what can we say? We can't complain as black people because that's what we wanted, a black man to go and tell us to tell them and it told us what we didn't want to hear. So we are moving backwards in that respect. Because, of course, we are all conditioned based on many different things, based on our environment, our upbringing. What do we think about northerners to southerners? Exactly. What do Jamaicans think about people from Barbados? Exactly. You know, what does, what do, what do, if you went and. Thin, you went fat, to, bold, ginger, you, you, you know, go, you name if it. If you went to have an operation and you needed a heart transplant and someone went, a scouser went, all right, mate, I'm going to be doing your heart transplant. Or someone went, oh, I'm going to be doing your heart transplant today in a posh accent. Who do you have more faith in? Yeah. Well, listen, my wife is from Liverpool, so I'm going so for Scouser. So when I talk about scapegoats, 
No, 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 you don't want to know. I wouldn't want him doing my heart transplant. I'm, I'm likely to pull as well. But so when we talk about scapegoats, why I call them scapegoats is because we have to be seen to be doing something. Now, because they want to maintain the status quo and maintain the power with the power brokers that that is, make sure that you don't criticize them. So, but we have to be seen to be doing something. So when we are seen to be doing something, let's blame the Romanian fourth official. Let's blame Peter Beardsley. Let's blame Liam Neeson. And these people are inconsequential to the bigger picture in terms of disenfranchisement and discrimination towards women, towards black people. But the more we convince people that the reason, the, the solution to stopping them is to banning Bulgaria from FIFA, then racism will go away. And we're using them as scapegoats because we have to be seen to be doing something rather than looking at the, the real reason, which is the system that we all live in and we're all part of. And mm. we have to be able to look at that objectively, but we don't. And that's why I call them the Vichy French, because we'll get black people now to go into these steering committees to then go and teach Romanians um, about not using, about the language that they use. Never mind that Negru, meaning black, has been around for before the old idea of racism, but now they can't, you can't say that anymore. And just as an example, I don't know if you know the the in one of the American Ivy League universities, whereby they had a class. It's in the book. They had a a master's degree class and pause sounds in between words, like as we speak now. And as I'm talking to you, I may then go, um, uh, uh, "What I'm thinking about, what to say." In Mandarin or Cantonese, one of the Chinese languages is "nega," and that's a sound. Mm. And the students walked out of the class because we know what it sounded like. And, that, and he got suspended because he said that. And he said, it's not a word. It's not a sound. This is what the class is about. And, and he's a scapegoat because now we're doing something about it because now you can't say that. So all of these scapegoats, why I call them scapegoats is because they are completely inconsequential to the solution to the bigger problem. But they're being used as an example of progress that we're making things better for black people. Token gestures is what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you say them, the power or... The elite. Who, who are you well, talking about? They call him about? the firm, don't they? You know, the, the, Harry call him the firm. Megham call him the firm. <laughs> who, <laughs> who, who, who are you talking about? The, 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 the power brokers for the last 500 years. Who are? Who are the higher echelons of Western society, whatever they are. They are the, that's the foundation of capitalism, the foundation of, 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 of exploitation for the last 400 years. And because the foundations are so well set, that may change. The structures may change, but the foundations stay the same. So the foundations... Disenfranchises, discriminates against, also discriminates against white working class people. So the nuances mm. around class and race and culture, but it's all discriminating against the minority, a powerful minority against a weak majority. You if can call I, them whatever you want to call them. If our if our minds, you know, have a propensity to power, to tribalism, etc., which the science, you know, suggests. Yeah. By even labeling them as them, and I'll take yeah. your point. Is there not a risk then in othering them? And it becomes well, us think, and them again. Well, I think you, you, you're always going to have that. That's how human beings survive because we weren't the strongest. We're, you know, our brains made us more bright, but we weren't the strongest. So we'll have to have that. But let's but go back to the can't we rise above that, John? Can't we rise yeah, above hang that? Hang a second. Well, well we can, but we have to get there first, but we're not there yet. And I'll tell you why. Because there are now unnatural dynamics at play in terms of who the us and the they are. We're going backwards because hundreds of years ago, the us were the black elite, the white elite. It had nothing to do with race, had nothing to do with gender. It had to do with whatever other aspirations or qualities that you were endowed with. Yeah, and as I said, that's the situation. Yeah, then this unreal situation of inequality because you are black or because you're a woman, because you're gay. You know, from Alexander's days, they had they had the strongest units of the spot of 
Alexander the Great's armies were gay soldiers who fought with their lovers against others because they felt that they would die for their lovers. So therefore, they were the strongest army. But of course, now gay men can't fight because they're a bit effeminate. And this is how we have been conditioned to think. So the point I'm making is that, yes, we will still discriminate, but it won't, we won't be discriminating based on lies and, and things we have been unnaturally conditioned to think. Hmm. Now, what you say is we're then going to move forward from that, not to discriminate at all, but we can't go from this to that. Hmm. And as I said, 400 years ago, it was much better because the discrimination wasn't about race, color, gender. So there's a psychological modality I'm very interested in. It's called ACT, acceptance and commitment training or therapy, right? And you spoke at the beginning about positive thinking and negative thinking. And I said, you know, about understanding that, you know, there's a lot of effort to change a negative thought to a positive thought, right? Yeah. But so I had a period of insomnia in my 20s and I got taught all this stuff. And so, for example, it's like, you know, when you're in the middle of the night and it's like, oh, my God, I'm not going to sleep. Tomorrow's going to be a, tomorrow's going to be a terrible day, etc. And, That's the and, drugs in your 20s, I think, but it's okay. It's a different story. Yeah. John, you can't lay out accusations like that with such little time left. Um, but, but what I got taught and what I learned, which was really transformative for me, was understanding that a thought is a thought, regardless of its content. So therefore, it's like, could it not be as well a real benefit in understanding that just because a thought pops in your head doesn't mean, A, that, you know, you, it's not that you've necessarily chosen it. It just will pop up through conditioning but you have a choice as to whether to what degree you identify with that thought because you could just go oh i'm having the thought that billy next door is not going to be good at xyz oh there's that thought oh i don't have to take that thought seriously it's just a thought let it go boom move yeah. on that's a bit of liam a solution neeson. as well liam neeson yeah yeah oh, man, I've, i know when he thought when he thought, when he thought he wanted to kill any black person for one week yeah. introspection completely went to the priest, thought about it, thought how destructive it was to himself, never had it again. What happened to him when he, when he made that thought? Clear? I know, yeah, yeah. He got cancelled. Anyway, John, listen, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I could talk to you for, for a long time. I really admire as well that you wrote the book. You know, you didn't have any ghostwriter and it, and it is very much a persuasive argument. There are some really powerful lines that I've highlighted in there and I'm going to read one out, right? The only way to achieve equality is not for the greatest of us to be accepted, but the lowest of us. And I thought that was a really lovely line. And there are lots of them in there. Anyway, listen, John, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Food for Had thought. Bit, food for thought, a bit of commonality, but I've very much enjoyed talking to you. So thank you, thank very, you very much. much. You're a kind man, John. It's been a lot, lot of thank fun. Thank you very much. All the very best. Thanks very much for listening to this week's episode with John Barnes. For me, recognising that our brains are hardwired to make judgments, often born of conditioning, but understanding that we do have a choice as to whether to identify with our conditioned thoughts is key. I'd love to hear your take on what is a complex topic. Get in touch via social media at Simon Mundy or via my website, simonmundy.com, where you can also sign up for this week's newsletter. And this week, I'm talking about the power of coming into our senses, the 80-20 rule, and how to make difficult conversations a little easier. And finally, if you could share this episode and rate and review this podcast, it would make a real difference. Anyway, that's it for now. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.